for, not guess at the meaning and root of the word Cronus, we only find parallels to the myth among savages, whose mental condition is fertile in such legends, and we only infer that the myth of Cronus was originally evolved by persons also in the savage intellectual condition, the survival we explain as, in a previous essay, we explained the survival of the bull roar by the conservatism of the religious instinct, Cupid, Psyche, and the sun frog, once upon a time there lived a king and a queen, says the old woman in Apuleius, beginning the tale of Cupid and Psyche with that ancient formula which has been dear to so many generations of children, in one shape or other the tale of Cupid and Psyche, of the woman who is forbidden to see or to name her husband, of the man with the vanished fairy bride, is known in most lands, even among barbarians, according to the story the mystic prohibition is always broken, the hidden face is beheld, light is brought into the darkness, the forbidden name is uttered, the bride is touched with the tabooed metal, iron, and the union is ended. Sometimes the pair are reunited. After long searchings and wanderings, sometimes they are severed forever. Such are the central situations in tales like that of Cupid and Psyche. In the attempt to discover how the ideas on which this myth is based came into existence, we may choose one of two methods. We may confine our investigations to the Aryan peoples, among whom the story occurs both in the form of myth and of household tale. Again, we may look for the shapes of the legend which hide, like Podan in disguise, among the rude crawls and wigwams, and in the strange and scanty garb of savages. If among savages we find both narratives like Cupid and Psyche, and also customs and laws out of which the myth might have arisen, we may provisionally conclude that similar customs once existed among the civilized races who possess the tale, and that from these sprang the early forms of the myth, in accordance with the method hitherto adopted. We shall prefer the second plan, and pursue our quest beyond the limits of the Aryan peoples. The oldest literary shape of the tale of Psyche and her lover is found in the Rig Veda X95. The characters of a singular and cynical dialogue in that poem are named Urvasi and Puroravas. The former is an Apsaras, a kind of fairy or sylph, the mistress and a fala matris, two of Puroravas, a mortal man. In the poem Urvasi remarks that when she dwelt among men she ate once a day a small piece of butter, and therewith well satisfied went away. This slightly reminds one of the common idea that the living may not eat in the land of the dead, and of Persephone's tasting the pomegranate in Hades, of the dialogue in the Rig Veda it may be said, in the words of Mr. Toots, that the language is coarse and the meaning is obscure. We only gather that Urvasi, though she admits her sensual content in the society of Puroravas, is leaving him like the first of the dawns, that she goes home again, hard to be caught, like the wines, she gives her lover some hope, however that the gods promise immortality even to him, the kinsman of death as the island let thine offspring worship the gods with an oblation, in heaven shalt thou to have joy of the festival, in the Rig Veda, then, we dimly discern a parting between a mortal man and an immortal bride, and a promise of reconciliation, the story, of which this Vedic poem is a partial dramatization, is given in the Brahmana of the Yajurveda. Mr. Max Muller has translated the passage, 66a according to the Brahmana, Urvasi, a kind of fairy, fell in love with Puroravas, and when she met him she said, embrace me three times a day, but never against my will, and let me never see you without your royal garments, for this is the manner of women, 66b the Gandharvas, a spiritual race, kinsman of Urvasi, thought she had lingered too long among men, they therefore plotted some way of parting her from Puroravas, 
her covenant with her lord declared that she was never to see him naked, if that compact were broken she would be compelled to leave him, to make Pirauravas break this compact the Gandharva stole a lamb from beside Urvasi's bed, Pirauravas sprang up to rescue the lamb, and, in a flash of lightning, Urvasi saw him naked, contrary to the manner of women, she vanished, he sought her along, and at last came to a lake where she and her fairy friends were playing in the shape of birds, Urvasi sought Pirauravas, revealed herself to him, and, According to the Brahmana, part of the strange Vedic dialogue was now spoken. Urvasi promised to meet him on the last night of the year, a son was to be the result of the interview. Next day, her kinsfolk, the Gandharvas, offered Pirauravas the wish of his heart. He wished to be one of them. They then initiated him into the mode of kindling a certain sacred fire, after which he became immortal and dwelt among the Gandharvas. It is highly characteristic of the Indian mind that the story should be thus worked into connection with ritual. In the same way the Bhagavata Purana has a long, silly, and rather obscene narrative about the sacrifice offered by Puraviravas, and the new kind of sacred fire. Much the same ritual tale is found in the Vishnu Purana IV. 6. 19. Before attempting to author our own theory of the legend, we must examine the explanations presented by scholars. The philological method of dealing with myths is well known. The hypothesis is that the names in a myth are stubborn things, and that, as the whole narrative has probably arisen from forgetfulness of the meaning of language, the secret of a myth must be sought in analysis of the proper names of the persons. On this principle Mr. Max Muller interprets the myth of Urvasi and Puraviravas, their loves, separation, and reunion. Mr. Muller says that the story expresses the identity of the morning dawn and the evening twilight. To prove this, the names are analyzed. It is Mr. Muller's object to show that though, even in the Veda, Urvasi and Puraviravas are names of persons, they were originally appellations, and that Urvasi meant dawn, and Puraviravas Sunday. Mr. Muller's opinion as to the etymological sense of the names would be thought decisive, naturally, by lay readers. If an opposite opinion were not held by that other great philologist and comparative mythologist, Adalbert Kuhn, admitting that the etymology of Urvasi is difficult, Mr. Muller derives it from URU, wide Greek, and a root as to pervade. Now the dawn is widely pervading, and has, in Sanskrit, the epithet Uruki, far going. Mr. Muller next assumes that Uruki Day, Urinum, Uritic, and other heroic Greek female names, are names of the dawn. But this, it must be said, is merely an assumption of his school. The main point of the argument is that Urvasi means far going, and that the far and wide splendor of dawn is often spoken of in the Veda. However, the best proof that Urvasi was the dawn is the legend told of her and of her love to Puraviravas, a story that is true only of the sun and the dawn I-407. We shall presently see that a similar story is told of persons in whom the dawn can scarcely be recognized so that the best proof is not very good. The name of Puraviravas, again, is an appropriate name for a solar hero. Puraviravas meant the same as Greek, endowed with much light. For, though Rava is generally used of sound, yet the root Ruthenium, which means originally to cry, is also applied to color, in the sense of a loud or crying color. That island red, 69A violet also, according to Sir G.W. Cox. 69b is a loud or crying color. The word Greek, as applied to color, is traced by Professor Max Muller to the root I as denoting a crying hue. That island allowed color, 
It is interesting to learn that our Aryan fathers spoke of loud colors, and were so sensitive as to think violet loud. Besides, Pirauravis calls himself Vasisa, which, as we know, is a name of the sun, and if he is called Ado, the son of Ida, the same name is elsewhere given 69c to Agni, the fire. The conclusion of the argument is that antiquity spoke of the naked Sunday and of the chaste dawn hiding her face when she had seen her husband, yet she says she will come again, and after the sun has traveled through the world in search of his beloved, when he comes to the threshold of death and is going to end his solitary life, she appears again, in the gloaming, the same as the dawn, as Eos in Homer, begins and ends the day, and she carries him away to the golden seats of the immortals. 69 d objects to all this explanation, partly on what we think the inadequate ground that there is no necessary connection between the story of Urbasi thus interpreted and the ritual of sacred fire lighting. Connections of that sort were easily invented at random by the compilers of the Brahmanas in their existing form. Coming to the analysis of names, Kuhn finds in Urbasi awakening of Urvanki Urvanc, like Uvaka from Uvanka, Latin Juvencus. The accent is of no decisive weight. Kuhn will not be convinced that Pirauravas is the Sunday and is unmoved by the ingenious theory of a crying color, denoted by his name, and the inference, supported by such words as Rufus, that crying colors are red, and therefore appropriate names of the red sun. The connection between Pirauravas and Agni, fire, is what appeals to Kuhn and, in short, where Mr. Muller sees a myth of sun and dawn, Kuhn recognizes a fire myth. Roth, again whose own name means red, far from thinking that Urvasi is the chaste dawn, interprets her name as Digale, that island lecherous, lascivious, lewd, wanton, obscene, while Pirauravas, as the roar, suggests the bull in rut. In accordance with these views Roth explains the myth in a fashion of his own, 78 here, then, as Kuhn says, we have three essentially different modes of interpreting the myth. 70b all three founded on philological analysis of the names in the story. No better example could be given to illustrate the weakness of the philological method. In the first place, that method relies on names as the primitive relics and germs of the tale. Although the tale may occur where the names have never been heard, and though the names are, presumably, late additions to a story in which the characters were originally anonymous, again, the most illustrious etymologists differ absolutely about the true sense of the names. Kuhn sees fire everywhere, and fire myths, Mr. Muller sees dawn and dawn myths, Swartz sees storm and storm myths, and so on, as the orthodox teachers are thus at variance, so that there is no safety in orthodoxy. We may attempt to use our heterodox method. None of the three scholars whose views we have glanced at neither Roth, Kuhn, nor Mr. Muller lay stress on the saying of Urbasi. Never let me see you without your royal garments, for this is the custom of women. To our mind, these words contain the gist of the myth. There must have been, at some time, a custom which forbade women to see their husbands without their garments, or the words have no meaning. If any custom of this kind existed, a story might well be evolved to give a sanction to the law. You must never see your husband naked, think what happened to her face she vanished clean away. This is the kind of warning which might be given. If the customary prohibition had grown obsolete, the punishment might well be assigned to a being of another, a spiritual, race, in which old human ideas lingered, as the Neolithic dread of iron lingers in the Welsh fairies. Our method will be, to prove the existence of singular rules of etiquette, 
corresponding to the etiquette accidentally infringed by Puroravas. We shall then investigate stories of the same character as that of Urvasi and Puroravas, in which the infringement of the etiquette is chastised. It will be seen that, in most cases, the bride is of a peculiar and perhaps supernatural race. Finally, the tale of Urvasi will be taken up again, will be shown to conform in character to the other stories examined, and will be explained as a myth told to illustrate, or sanction, a nuptial etiquette. The lives of savages are bound by the most closely woven fetters of custom. The simplest acts are tabooed. A strict code regulates all intercourse. Married life, especially, moves in the strangest fetters. There will be nothing remarkable in the wide distribution of a myth turning on nuptial etiquette. If this law of nuptial etiquette proves to be also widely distributed, that it is widely distributed we now propose to demonstrate by examples. The custom of the African people of the kingdom of Futa Island or was, even stricter than the Vedic custom of women wives never permit their husbands to see them unveiled for three years after their marriage. In his travels to Timbuktui 94, Kaley says that the bridegroom is not allowed to see his intended during the day. He has a tabooed head apart, and if he is obliged to come out he covers his face. He remains with his wife only till daybreak like Cupid and flees, like Cupid, before the light. Among the Australians the chief deity, if deity such a being can be called, Punjil, has a wife whose face he has never seen, probably in compliance with some primeval etiquette or taboo. 73A Among the Yorubas conventional modesty forbids a woman to speak to her husband, or even to see him, if it can be avoided. 73B of the Iroquois of says, Ilas knows an all or dance like a band's particulars or you have been lures air houses kudur and lobscarite de lanuit. 73 See the Circassian women live on distant terms with their lords till they become mothers. 73 D Similar examples of reserve are reported to be customary among the Fijians. In backward parts of Europe a strange custom forbids the bride to speak to her lord, as if in memory of a time when husband and wife were always of alien tribes, and, as among the Caribs, spoke different languages. In the Bulgarian Folksleet, the son marries Grostenka, a mortal girl. Her mother addresses her thus, Grostenka, mother's treasure mine. For nine long years I nourished thee. For nine months see thou do not speak to thy first love that marries thee. And those on, who has collected the Bulgarian songs, says that this custom of prolonged silence on the part of the bride is very common in Bulgaria, though it is beginning to yield to a sense of the ludicrous. 74A in Sparta and in Crete, as is well known, the bridegroom was long the victim of a somewhat similar taboo and was only permitted to seek the company of his wife secretly, and in the dark, like the Iroquois described by Lafitau. Herodotus tells us I-146 that some of the old Ionidon colonists brought no women with them, but took wives of the women of the Carians, whose fathers they had slain, therefore the women made a law for themselves, and handed it down to their daughters, that they should never sit at meat with their husbands, and that none should ever call her husband by his name. In precisely the same way, in Zululand the wife may not mention her husband's name, just as in the Welsh fairy tale the husband may not even know the name of his fairy bride, on pain of losing her forever. These ideas about names, and freakish ways of avoiding the use of names, mark the childhood of languages, according to Mr. Max Muller, 74B and, therefore, the childhood of society. The Cathars call this etiquette Lomipa. It applies to women as well as men. A Kathar bride is not called by her own name in her husband's village, 
but is spoken of as mother of so and so, even before she has borne a child. The universal superstition about names is at the bottom of this custom. The Aleutian Icelanders, according to Dahl, are quite distressed when obliged to speak to their wives in the presence of others. The Fijians did not know where to look when missionaries hinted that a man might live under the same roof as his wife. 75A among the Turkomans, for six months, a year, or two years, a husband is only allowed to visit his wife by stealth. The number of these instances could probably be increased by a little research. Our argument is that the widely distributed myths in which a husband or a wife transgresses some custom sees the other's face or body, or uppers the forbidden name might well have arisen as tales illustrating the punishment of breaking the rule. By a very curious coincidence, a Breton sailor's tale of the Cupid and Psyche class is confessedly founded on the existence of the rule of nuptial etiquette. 75b In this story the son of a balone pilot marries the daughter of the king of Maz wherever that may be. In Maz a man is never allowed to see the face of his wife till she has borne him a child a modification of the Futa rule. The inquisitive French husband unveils his wife, and, like Psyche in Apuleius, drops wax from a candle on her cheek. When the pair return to Maz, the king of that country discovers the offense of the husband, and, by the aid of his magicians, transforms the Frenchman into a monster. Here we have the old formula the infringement of a taboo, and the magical punishment adapted to the ideas of Breton peasantry. The essential point of the story, for our purpose, is that the veiling of the bride is the custom of women. In the mysterious land of Maz, C.S. Lizage to Lemaris Northeast Boy and Urs from Sands Boyal Kulor son David is nears. Now our theory of the myth of Urvasi is simply this, the custom of women which Puroorovis transgresses, is probably a traditional Aryan law of nuptial etiquette. Lizajtupes, once prevalent among the people of India, if our view be correct, then several rules of etiquette, and not one alone, will be illustrated in the stories which we suppose the rules to have suggested. In the case of Urvasi and Puroorovis, the rule was, not to see the husband naked. In Cupid and Psyche, the husband was not to be looked upon at all. In the well-known myth of Melusine, the bride is not to be seen naked. Melusine tells her lover that she will only abide with him down ipsum nudum non viderite. 76a The same taboo occurs in a Dutch American. 76b We have now to examine a singular form of the myth, in which the strange bride is not a fairy, or spiritual being, but an animal. In this class of story the husband is usually forbidden to perform some act which will recall to the bride the associations of her old animal existence. The converse of the tale is the well-known legend of the forsaken mermen. The king of the sea permits his human wife to go to church. The ancient sacred associations are revived, and the woman returns no more. She will not come though you call all day come away. Come away. Now, in the tales of the animal bride, it is her associations with her former life among the beasts that are not to be revived, and when they are reawakened by the commission of some act which she has forbidden or the neglect of some precaution which she has enjoyed, she, like her vasey, disappears. The best known example of this variant of the tale is the story of Beaky. In Sanskrit, Mr. Max Muller has interpreted the myth in accordance with his own method. His difficulty is to account for the belief that a kin might marry a frog. Our ancestors, he remarks, were not idiots. How then could they tell such a story? We might reply that our ancestors, if we go far enough back, were savages, and that such stories are the staple of savage myth. Mr. Muller, however, 
holds that an accidental corruption of language reduced Aryan fancy to the savage level. He explains the corruption thus, we find, in Sanskrit, that Piti, the frog, was a beautiful girl, and that one day, when sitting near a well, she was discovered by a king, who asked her to be his wife. She consented, on condition that he should never show her a drop of water. One day, being tired, she asked the king for water, the king forgot his promise, brought water, and Beaky disappeared. This myth, Mr. Muller holds, began with a short saying, such as that, Beaky, the sundown will die at the sight of water, as we should say that the sun will set, when it approaches the water from which it rose in the morning. But how did the sun come to be called Beaky, the frog? Mr. Muller supposes that this name was given to the sun by some poet or fisherman. He gives no evidence for the following statement, it can be shown that, frog, was used as a name for the sun. Now at sunrise and sunset, when the sun was squatting on the water, it was called the, frog. At what historical period the Sanskrit-speaking race was settled in seats where the sun rose and set in water, we do not know. And chapter and verse are needed for the statement that frog was actually a name of the Sunday Mr. Muller's argument, however, is that the sun was called the frog that people forgot that the frog and sun were identical, and that frog, or beaky, was mistaken for the name of a girl to whom was applied the old saw about dying at sight of water, and so, says Mr. Muller, the change from sun to frog, and from frog to man, which was at first due to the mere spell of language, would in our nursery tales be ascribed to miraculous charms more familiar to a later age, as a matter of fact. Magical metamorphoses are infinitely more familiar to the lowest savages than to people in a later age. Magic, as Castron observes, belongs to the lowest known stages of civilization. Mr. Muller's theory, however, is this that a Sanskrit-speaking people, living where the sun rose out of and set in some ocean, called the Sunday as he touched the water, Beaky, the frog, and said he would die at the sight of water. They ceased to call the sun the frog, or Beaky but kept the saying, Beaky will die at sight of water, not knowing who or what Beaky might be, they took her for a frog, who also was a pretty wench. Lastly, they made the story of Beaky's distinguished wedding and mysterious disappearance. For this interpretation, historical and linguistic evidence is not offered. When did a Sanskrit-speaking race lie beside a great sea? How do we know that frog was used as a name for sun? We have already given our explanation to the savage intellect, man and beast are on a level, and all savage myth makes men descended from beasts, while stories of the loves of gods in bestial shape, or the unions of men and animals, incessantly occur, and natural as these notions seem to us, no ideas are more familiar to savages, and none recur more frequently in Indo-Aryan, Scandinavian, and Greek mythology, an extant tribe in Northwest America still claims descent from a frog. The wedding of Beaky and the king is a survival, in Sanskrit, of a tale of this kind. Lastly, Beaky disappears, when her associations with her old amphibious life are revived in the manner she had expressly forbidden. Our interpretation may be supported by an Ojibwe parallel. A hunter named Otter Hart, camping near a beaver lodge, found a pretty girl loitering round his fire. She keeps his wigwam in order, and lays his blanket near the deerskin she had laid for herself good, he muttered, this is my wife, she refuses to eat the beavers he has shot, but at night he hears a noise, krch, krch, as if beavers were gnawing wood, he sees, 
by the glimmer of the fire, his wife nibbling birch twigs, in fact, the good little wife is a beaver, as the pretty Indian girl was a frog, the pair lived happily till spring came and the snow melted and the streams ran full, then his wife implored the hunter to build her a bridge over every stream and river, that she might cross dry-footed, for, she said, if my feet touch water, this would at once cause thee great sorrow, the hunter did as she bade him, but left and bridged one tiny runnel, the wife stumbled into the water, and, as soon as her foot was wet, she immediately resumed her old shape as a beaver, her son became a beaverling, and the brooklet, changing to a roaring river, bore them to the lake, once the hunter saw his wife again among her beast kin, to the I sacrificed all, she said, and I only ask thee to help me dry-footed over the waters, thou didst cruelly neglect this, now I must remain forever with my people, this tale was told to Cole by an old insignificant squaw among the Ojibways, ADA here we have a precise parallel to the tale of Beaky, the frog bride, and here the reason of the prohibition to touch water is made perfectly unmistakable, the touch magically revived the bride's old animal life with the beavers, or was the Indian name for beaver to mix a once a name for the sun? ADB a curious variant of this widely distributed merkin of the animal bride is found in the mythical genealogy of the Raja of Shushianagpur, a chief of the Naga, or snake race. It is said that Raja Janamja prepared a Yadunya, or great malevolently magical incantation, to destroy all the people of the serpent race. To prevent this annihilation, the supernatural being, Pandarakanag, took a human form, and became the husband of the beautiful Parvati, daughter of a Brahmin. But Pandarakanag, being a serpent by nature, could not divest himself, even in human shape, of his forked tongue and venomed breath, and, just as Urvasi could not abide with her mortal lover, after he transgressed the prohibition to appear before her naked, so Pandarakanag was compelled by fate to leave his bride, if she asked him any questions about his disagreeable peculiarities, she did, at last, ask questions in circumstances which made Pandaraka believe that he was bound to answer her. Now the curse came upon him. He plunged into a pool, like the beaver, and vanished. His wife became the mother of the serpent Rajas of Shushianagpur. Pandaraka Nag, in his proper form as a great hooded snake, guarded his firstborn child. The crest of the house is a hooded snake with human face. 81 a year, then. We have many examples of the disappearance of the bride or bridegroom in consequence of infringement of various mystic rules. Sometimes the beloved one is seen when he or she should not be seen. Sometimes, as in a Maori story, the bride vanishes, merely because she is in a bad temper. 81b among the red men, as in Sanskrit, the on water is broken, with the usual results. Now for an example in which the rule against using names is infringed. 82a This formula constantly occurs in the Welsh fairy tales published by Professor Arachis. 82b Thus the heir of Corion fell in love with a fairy, they were married on the distinct understanding that the husband was not to know her name, and was not to strike her with iron, on pain of her leaving him at once, and luckily the man once tossed her a bridle, the iron bit touched the wife, and she at once flew through the air, and plunged headlong into Corion Lake. A number of tales turning on the same incident are published in Simrader. B.I. In these we have either the taboo on the name, or the taboo on the touch of iron. In a widely diffused superstition iron drives away devils and ghosts. According to the scholiast on the 11th book of the Odyssey, and the Oriental Jinn also flee from iron, 
82C Just as water is fatal to the Aryan frog bride and to the Red Indian beaver wife, restoring them to their old animal forms, so the magic touch of iron breaks love between the Welshman and his fairy mistress, the representative of the Stone Age. In many tales of fairy brides, they are won by a kind of force. The lover in the familiar Welsh and German American sees the swan maidens throw off their swan plumage and dance naked. He steals the feather garb of one of them, and so compels her to his love. Finally, she leaves him, in anger, or because he has broken some taboo. Far from being peculiar to Aryan mythology, this legend occurs, as Mr. Ferrer has shown, 83A in Algonquin and Bornoese tradition. The Red Indian story told by Schoolcraft in his Algic researches is most like the Aryan version, but has some native peculiarities. Wampi was a great hunter, who, on the lonely prairie, once heard strains of music. Looking up he saw a speck in the sky, the speck drew nearer and nearer, and proved to be a basket containing twelve heavenly maidens. They reached the earth and began to dance, inflaming the heart of Wampi with love. But Wampi could not draw near the fairy girls in his proper form without alarming them. Like Zeus in his love adventures, Wampi exercised the medicine man's power of metamorphosing himself. He assumed the form of a mouse, approached and observed, and caught one of the dancing maidens. After living with Wampi for some time she wearied of earth, and, by virtue of a mystic chain of verse, she ascended again to her heavenly home. Now is there any reason to believe that this incident was once part of the myth of pure Uravas and Urvasi? Was the fairy love, Urvasi, originally caught and held by pure Uravas among her naked and struggling companions? Though this does not appear to have been much noticed, it seems to follow from a speech of pure Uravas in the Vedic Dialogue 83BX95, 8, 9. Mr. Max Muller translates thus, When I the mortal, threw my arms round those flighty immortals, they trembled away from me like a trembling doe, like horses that kick against the cart. 84A Ludwig's rendering suits our view that Pure Uravas is telling how he first caught Urvasi still better, when I the mortal, held converse with the immortals who had laid aside their raiment. Like slippery serpents they glided from me, like horses yoked to the car. These words would well express the adventure of a lover among the naked flying swan maidens an adventure familiar to the red men as to Persian legends of the Paris. To end our comparison of myths like the tale of Cupid and Psyche, we find an example among the Zulus. Here a before b the mystic lover came in when all was dark, and felt the damsel's face. After certain rites, in the morning he went away, he speaking continually, the girl not seeing him. During all those days he would not allow the girl sick, when she said she would light a fire. Finally, after a magical ceremony, he said, light the fire, and stood before her revealed, a shining shape. This has a curious resemblance to the myth of Cupid and Psyche, but a more curious detail remains. In the Zulu story of Yuko McKinsey, the friends of a bride break a taboo and kill a tabooed animal. Instantly, like Urvasi and her companions in the Yajurveda, the bride and her maidens disappear and are turned into birds. 84C They are afterwards surprised in human shape and the bride is restored to her lover. Here we conclude, having traced parallels to Cupid and Psyche in many non-Aryan lands, our theory of the myth does not rest on etymology. We have seen that the most renowned scholars, Max Muller, Kuhn, Roth, all analyze the names Urvasi and Pura in different ways, and extract the Thurin, 